Well, 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 come, 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 come to, to, to the confessional. Hey, y'all, this is Baratunde. It is about 1.30 a.m., and I should be asleep. I'm not yet, but I will be as soon as I'm done with this dispatch to you people. I'm in New York City, but I just got back from Boston, where I spent the weekend, went up Saturday morning. And what I would like to talk to y'all about or talk at y'all about, this isn't really a conversation now, is it, is uh, what my experience with last week was, what it was like to be in Boston this weekend, some observations, some concerns, some emotions, and uh, let's see where we get with all that. For those who don't know, I lived in the Boston area for 12 years, four of them as an undergrad student at Harvard, and living on campus, and then eight as a citizen, taxpayer, employed person for the most part, and a renter in Somerville and in Cambridge. And I, obviously the bombing, you know, happened exactly a week ago plus a few hours, and I've been following that some, but I also, last week was one of those weeks when I was on the road. Uh, Tuesday I was in Dumbo doing some film shooting, which is fun. Wednesday went to Iowa State University in Ames to talk about how to be black and had a really great time with those students talking about the Accidental Racist song, which feels like it came out so, so long ago. And it did. Thursday was in Philly at the Free Library, uh, Central Library in downtown Philly. And that's what, uh, that's where our story begins. I came home to my friend's place in West Philly from that event we talked a bit around a little after 11. I got a text from a friend in Boston. I didn't know that I got the text from him because I didn't check my phone because I've been practicing disconnection. Uh, and I've been practicing trying to be present. And I'm talking to my boy who I haven't seen in a while. And I'm like, why do I don't need to check this vibration because I'm already where I am. So I ended up uh, waiting an hour roughly about to go to bed, he said he had to look at some work stuff and have some whiskey. And said, oh, you want to grab some whiskey? And I said, nah, nah, I'm, I'm good. I'm going to go to bed. But I checked that text message. There was a friend in Boston who thought I was at MIT. I was scheduled to be there this weekend for some activities with the MIT Media Lab where I serve as a director's fellow, which is cool. And we may get to that, but that's not the point. The point is, I had a friend who thought I was there and he had texted me saying, yo, there's an active shooter on MIT campus, you know, keep your head down. And I decided to research this, went on the internet, and did what a lot of other people did. It wasn't, it wasn't very unique. Found some Twitter activity. Turned on, I saw my friend Anand Girdardas. He's Anand Writes on Twitter, and he was listening to the police scanner and tweeting out a bunch of what looked like insanity from the police scanner. I even texted him off of Twitter saying, like, yo, be careful with this police scanner stuff. It's not uh, validated information. Uh, And then he started talking about grenades. And I was like, what the fuck is going on? So I was like, fine, I'll turn on the police scanner. I came downstairs. I broke out the whiskey with my friend who was hosting me. We turned on the news, which had nothing at that time. We turned on the police scanner, which had way too much at that time. And... I started doing my little live Twitter coverage thing. I haven't really done that since Occupy Wall Street's raid. And actually the debates. um, And Sandy. Never mind. Everything I just said was a lie. But I certainly had done it since my Twitter hiatus 
over De- December break that I created for myself. So I'm jamming, I'm listening, I'm freaking out, I'm texting friends to see you know that they stay off the streets. I have a ton of friends in the Cambridge area, and specifically the MIT area of Cambridge. And I was up for several hours, probably till about 3.30 in the morning, got up around 7, and got on the train back to New York. Work day, very destroyed. Um, and, you know, what's happened that day has become the public record, so I don't need to walk too much through that. Where it gets more interesting, and how it leads me back to Boston, is Friday evening I was hosting a Whiskey Friday event in the Lower East Side of Manhattan at a bar called Whiskey Ward. And I had turned all my Twitter alerts and buzzes back on. This was the first time that I had turned Twitter alerts on in terms of the mobile app since my vacation. I've been very proud. I'm like, I don't need to know when certain people are tweeting or when even my name is mentioned. I turned my ego off on this app. And now I flipped all those switches back on because I just had to know what was up. And I saw the shelter-in-place order lifted while I was at this bar. And then a few... Seemingly moments later, they said they knew where he was, they were honing in, and they found him. And I shared that news with the people in the bar in New York. And I was like, yo, I'm at Whiskey Friday in New York. The people of Boston need a Whiskey Friday, but they're just coming out of their homes right now. I can't get there fast enough, and I would love to do something there for them. So I proposed to Twitter, yo, what if I did a Whiskey Friday on Saturday, came up tomorrow, would that be a good thing? That's an approximate quote. And the response was very positively overwhelming. I threw it on Facebook as well. And thus began my plans to go to Boston and host this whiskey camaraderie type event. I figured the MIT stuff would have been canceled because Harvard canceled reunion things. And there had been uh, a bunch of stuff just thrown off by having the whole city locked down. 87 square miles of no commerce, no traffic no walking about on the streets. So I uh, found another volunteer in Boston, this guy Matt uh, Caroli, I think is his last name. He works for Arnold Worldwide. And we worked together to figure out a venue, see if we could spot uh, and open up a tab. And we split that cost. And we did it. We did a, a Whiskey F- Saturday, a very special edition of Whiskey Friday for the people of Boston at Middlesex Lounge. Uh, and we had probably 60 people roll through, maybe even... 70 all told. Uh, I think at peak there were like 50 people in the room simultaneously. We owned the whole bar for a while. And they were so happy. And I didn't, you know, not being right there, like I had been around New York City for Sandy and then had to leave. I was not in New York during 9-11 and I wasn't in Boston during this bombing and certainly not during the manhunt. The Twitter gets you close, but I wasn't stuck in my home. And being able to, or being surrounded by friends and friends of friends who were so relieved of a stress that I didn't even know if they knew that they were carrying, that was a really beautiful moment. And a lot of people were very grateful. And they said, yo, thanks for doing this. This You have no idea how much this means. I'm meeting great people. I'm out again. And it, it just feels good to, to be out in the, in the open. So that was unexpectedly gratifying. I also met up with a friend earlier that day in downtown Boston, and we were watching the Red Sox game, and they had this opening ceremony that was longer than usual, where they brought out the volunteers from the marathon, and uh, at least one dude who was injured in the blast, 
and said all the things you say in moments like this, which tug at your emotions and your heartstrings, and it works because you know most of us are pretty human. And so we're kind of crying in the bar, drinking margaritas, not watching the game, reliving everybody's version of events uh, as I met more and more local people across these two events uh, that I held, that was a part of or, or hosted on Saturday. And he, here's some of the things that I learned uh, from the people who were there at the time. One, uh, Middlesex Lounge, for anyone who knows the Cambridge area, or you don't, that's my job to, to paint the picture, it's right next to MIT. And it's probably three blocks from where uh, Sergeant Sean, um, Sean Collier, the MIT police officer, was killed. And at that night, Thursday, when it was all going down and MIT put things on lockdown, uh, the police apparently had uh, told this nightclub to shut down, but the management was more concerned at sending 100 or so people out into the streets in the middle of a manhunt, active shooter situation would be far worse. So they actually kept everybody inside. They locked the doors temporarily, and, uh, and folks were fine. And I thought that was, I mean, if you're a, if you ever run a restaurant or a bar or a club, that's terrifying. You always feel responsible, I think, for the people in your care. You know, you don't want some, someone to drop a glass and it breaks and cut somebody. You don't want a beam to fall on them. But shit, if you know some crazy things are going down just outside your walls and the only real thing you can do is either send everybody out into it or lock the doors, hopefully against it, and keep folks inside... That's a, a major uh, situation to be in uh, as a manager, as a bartender, as a, as a venue owner. And I, once again, things I would not have imagined uh, were going on. I had uh, f- some friends who were in their 30s, a couple with two very young kids under three years old. And they you know, had their TV on for the first time. There's this generation that doesn't watch TV except when all the stuff goes down. And they had to limit that because they didn't want to overexpose their kids to what was going on. But this is the most stressed they had been. And they, uh, I remember the mother telling me that she wanted to go take the kids out of the house. And uh, the husband was like, no, you're not, we're not going in the front yard. This is very close to where all this stuff is going down. They did go out in the backyard briefly just to play in the dirt and experience the planet and the city a little bit, at least for these kids, so they would be a little more sane throughout it. But, you know, the parental instinct to protect, you know, gets so strong. And again, something not quite familiar for me. I'm not a parent and I'm not a homeowner either. So that was, uh, that was interesting. I, I met a friend of a friend who's uh, saw a parking ticket on a National Guard truck at Boston Common. That was dope. She she even showed me the photo and I tweeted it. Someone responded on Facebook to that saying that the, that was the National Guard playing a joke kind of on themselves. I really hope so. But more of me hopes that there was a Boston meter maid who's like, I don't give a fuck. I don't care if the city is coming to an end. I have a job to do. And I'm going to collect the last fine in this city this week. I'm doing my job. You do your job. That, that's a slightly better version of history uh, as far as I'm concerned. Uh, and then I, as I um, connected with the Media Lab people, they went ahead with the program. They delayed and edited the schedule some, but we had a dinner on Saturday night. Brooklyn Boulder 
is also going to be in Somerville, Massachusetts. It's an indoor rock climbing meeting space, cafe, all kinds of cool stuff happens in this. We had a dinner in there, rough space, and I was talking to these Media Lab students from MIT. Some of them were stuck in the lab because they work late because they're passionate about what they do. Again, I didn't even think about that. And there's a shower there, but there's no towels. There's munchies, but no real food. And you, know, you get a little cabin fever. Now, obviously, I, I collected and heard and experienced very lightly, but mostly heard stories somewhat similar in the blackout uh, during and after Sandy in lower Manhattan. And that's people sort of being stuck inside for a week, two weeks, three weeks. But when the sun comes out, you go outside, you're definitely nervous safety-wise. Things are a little unstable. But it's not ratcheted up the same degree as like 9,000 law enforcement officials and armored personnel carriers and helicopters uh, and grenades and pressure cooker bombs and hundreds of rounds of bullets flying and a cop who's dead and a carjacking on all these streets that, you know, have been your home. And for someone who used to call that his home, it's extra surreal to hear some of these street names on the national news, like Arsenal Mall does not belong on the national news for any reason, nor, nor does Norfolk Street, nor does Main Street. And it's a really sort of nostalgic, awkward, flashback, teleporting, emotional, uh, and confusing experience to know the area so well and not be there as these things are going down, but feel so connected because of all of our digitalism. Uh, I guess I have a few other thoughts as I try to wind this down. I don't need this episode to be long for the sake of it. But I saw a lot of uh, cheering going on and jeering about coverage during this from all the angles. You know, you, you had suddenly a very loud internet contingent be like, Reddit won, Twitter won, old media is dead and stupid, CNN is not reporting anything. And, you know, in the very beginning, there's nothing to report. I get it. Like, shut up, CNN. If you don't have anything useful to say, don't say anything at all. And we've become, as I learned when I turned all these things off, so addicted to saying things. Uh, and cable news is predicated on just saying things, regardless of whether it's valuable. That restraint becomes the new uh, value or the new the new worthy attribute uh, when you don't say something it's like, oh this is good you have the ability to shut the fuck up that's great because hey guess what you don't know everything that's going on so it was just really interesting i mean i had ridden that police scanner wave before during the occupy wall street raid and i've never been a full-on journalist trained in the ways uh, of all local and metro reporting my older sister certainly has and when i was at the newspaper at harvard we would uh, listen to the scanner from time to time, but I, I just know enough about journalism to know that I'm not a full-on journalist and that there are a few fact-checking skills and vetting and second sourcing and things that we just want to be careful of. And the internet's, you know, not, I mean, it was somewhat self-correcting, but a lot of people got caught up in the, uh, in the panic, in the excitement, and those two feelings are very closely related. Uh, and so you have false f you know, fingers being pointed in the wrong direction. You had claims being made about folks arrested. And uh, I didn't really watch too much news of television on the national since I was streaming the local Channel 7 news. I think it's WHDH and also WBUR. So 
main point being it was awkward for me to to be reading about all these things and then to go up there and interact and walk through the city again and just eat, getting off the train Sunday morning and seeing, you know, ATF vehicles and National Guard folks at South Station. That was it. That was like, oh, shit, this is real. Um, I had a, a flash of a moment of some conflict briefly on Twitter. There's a guy, Seth Manukin, who's an MIT professor. He was on the scene really early and live-tweeting everything he saw. And I found him really early and was retweeting most of the things that he was live-tweeting. And he got to a point on Friday where he posted, hey, look, the cops have asked us to stop tweeting out what's going on on the scanner. Please do it now. We can debate later whether this is an overreaction. So I retweeted that because uh, I valued his perspective. That was an interesting statement. And I... I understand it. I basically agreed as well. And then someone uh, tweeted at me like, oh, well, you know, you're just obeying now, and I guess you don't believe in debate. That's a rough approximation of this person's statements, but the sentiment was basically like, oh, you can't debate later if you're doing what they say now. There is no debate. And I was like, no, you can still debate after the fact. Was that the right thing to do? But in the midst of the crisis, uh, let's, you know, give them a benefit of the doubt, and if... We're all smart enough to turn these tools on. Maybe the, uh, the suspect is as well. We have a lot of risk in an urban scenario. So that was, you know, started leading me to think about some of the questions. You know, the whole city was shut down. That's like a million people, 87 square miles. And only when they lifted that shelter in place. Who even heard of shelter in place before? I, I wonder how many things are on the books that are contingencies, especially since 9-11, that we have not heard yet. Right, like shelter in place, I feel like there was a section 306 of the Massachusetts State Code, and they just yanked that out there, uh, but we're clearly prepared to authorize it or declare it or request it. I don't know if it was an order, I don't know if it was enforceable, but people did follow that. Um, and then you see you know, the extraordinary show of force. We have these rules in this country that you, the posse comitatus, I'm gonna, again, Paraphrase, but essentially we cannot deploy our own armed services domestically. And that's becoming a moot point because our law enforcement is severely armed. Uh, you see armored personnel carriers, you see up-armored Humvees, you see full-on body armor and all the infrared technologies and the assault rifles. It's very indistinguishable from military per se, and that's a result of the drug war and then the war on terror, funding our law enforcement agencies uh, and arming them tremendously. And that is something that's worth debating. I'm not getting into it now, but I think we'd be fools to not look back and think about you know, what happened and what was necessary and how do we think about this in the future. At the same time, I'm a human being who's selfish and wants my friends to be cool and, and feels feelings of vengeance when things are personal. As, and this felt mildly, you know, above average personal for me. So you just see the expense that was not spared to try to get these dudes. You're like, yo, this is a serious reaction. They are willing to stop all economic activity for one of the major hubs and cities in this country to find one dude. And uh, I don't know that this has been said a lot on air. I guess this is going to be one of my longer uh, confessionals, by the way. But, you know, roll with me. 
Or stop. This is on your time. So you could pause. You could come back a, a year from now. That'd be an awkward thing to do. But you have that right because freedom is what is a thing uh, that we do here uh, on occasion. But I... Where was that now? I'm, I I did this. I lost my own uh, place, and I never have notes for these things because there's kind of riffs. But in thinking about the um, the use of force, I remembered that this is, and I think Rachel Maddow helped me remember. I'm pretty sure she gets the credit for this. This is the first successful bombing on U.S. soil since 9/11. Uh, not you know discounting industrial accidents. This is it. And of course, there's tons of gun violence every day in certain neighborhoods. We've gotten uh, numb to mass shootings. So even Newtown, the horror was its kids, but we almost expect schools to get shot up. But this was a very public event. There was nothing political about the Boston Marathon. Not really. It wasn't a symbol of American capitalism or um, militarism or any of the things that we traditionally associate with folks who are mad. Um, you know, the Unabomber struck out at scientists and we've got some logic as twisted as it might be for some of these things. And this didn't fit a lot of that and we're still putting the pieces together. So maybe by the time you hear this, we'll have another piece in place. But mostly this was the first thing that got through since 9-11. That's an emotional blow. I don't know if the country's really said that out loud a lot to be like, oh shit. They got us. Whoever the day is, we got us. You know, these are American citizens, uh, at least the younger one, as far as I understand. So that's a big deal, and not a ton of people died. Uh, by the way, I got a note um, in one of my get interactions this weekend. One of the reasons that uh, so few people, so few of these casualties became fatalities, at least at, at one major hospital, they were at shift change time, so they were essentially double staffed. And the people who are headed out the door stuck around. Uh, there's a great New Yorker piece that goes into more detail about why the Boston hospitals reacted as well as they did. It's also not a bad place if you're going to have some stuff blow up. You know, be in the capital of biotechnology and medical services and university hospitals. Um, and the drills that the city has done since 9-11 uh, have clearly paid off. So, so that theme emerged for me, though. The... Um, this notion of the, the thing that got through the cracks. You know, the shoe bomber was stopped. The Times Square dude was stopped. There was a dude in Brooklyn arrested a while back. Uh, the Jersey guys, I mean, I think you also had, uh, in that military base, I'm pretty sure it was Texas, uh, the soldier who shot up the place. But bombings are an especially emotional and... Uh, they trigger a certain memory, like the IRA does bombings and IEDs, and 9-11 uh, was essentially turning planes into bombs. So this was the first of that in over a decade, and that, that's got to sting. You could, you could hear the rage in the president's voice when he spoke at that church last week. Uh, this, this was personal in, in a way that is really understandable. So I am, in conclusion, exhausted. And partly it's from staying up all night in the early days, trying to keep up with the story. We, there's still something to be said and studied and discussed about everybody trying to be the situation room for these developing situations. And we feel like, and are often right, that we can move more quickly than a traditional news disseminating organization. 
Um, but do we all need to tweet 400 times from the same police scanner? Definitely don't need to, but we feel compelled to. And, and I certainly did, and I felt connected to this event in an interesting way. So I'm tired from that. Uh, I think I underestimated what the emotion of being in Boston would do. And, you know, sitting at the downtown bar watching this Red Sox thing, cried, going to host this Whiskey Saturday event, was overwhelmed emotionally with the, the relief and the positive emotion people pointed in my direction uh, for pulling this off. And, uh, and then my time at the Media Lab, you know, that's a, a separate edition or episode, but there was actually a very emotionally intense gathering there, too, amongst all of our director our fellow fellows in this new Director's Fellows program. Uh, and I got back to New York tonight, and I went straight from the train station to an event about immigration and undocumented people. And it was hosted by Jose Antonio Vargas, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist, used to work for the Washington Post and Huffington Post, and uh, came out as undocumented, which is the new coming out. He had come out as gay long before, but this was a somewhat bigger deal, actually. And uh, has a film premiering in the next month or two uh, called Documented. And it's a lot of his story of having been sent here when he was very young, not knowing that he wasn't legally present, and only finding that out later and concealing that for quite some time once he did find out, and then finally going public with it in a very brave and uh, I'm sure emotionally traumatizing act. So I walked into this room uh, at a church in the Lower East Side in New York just as Jose was taken to the stage and talking about you know, seeing his mother and recognizing how small she was for the first time since he was a small person. And they showed a clip from the film and I, uh, all this emotion just hit and, and the things are connected. You know, you, we have... Uh, an equal and opposite reaction is the law of physics. We often have a disproportionate reaction. And when you see, oh, these guys um, were immigrants, that just triggers a whole bunch of bullshit. And we're actually in the middle of, I think it's called Immigrant Heritage Week, Immigrant Appreciation Week. I don't know if it's national or just in New York. But it's an interesting time. We're talking about immigration reform. We're looking at this explosive, dramatic, crazed event in Boston. Jose's got this film coming out, and for this pseudo-reporter, it's all been a bit much. So, I just want to thank y'all. This is one of the longer versions uh, that I've done in a long time, and I appreciate those who stuck all the way through. If you have thoughts on it, you know, put them somewhere on the internet. Maybe uh, somebody will respond to them. Maybe I'll find them. I'm not really trying to uh, aggregate all your eyes in one spot and say, like, type at me. Uh, I get typed at a lot. But if you do want to share your thoughts, obviously on SoundCloud, you could add an audio or text thought um, on soundcloud.com slash baratunde. And my site is baratunde.com. I'll throw one other thing out that I just remembered putting together with my company hat on. I am co-founder of this company, Cultivated Wit. And a thing that I found fascinating were just the horrible tweets that were happening. So I started a Storify list of the best worst tweets of the Boston Marathon bombing manhunt thing. That's roughly the title. Storify.com slash cultivated wit. And you can see just the worst of people and the dumbest of people who took to their keyboards because freedom is a thing we do every once in a while.
And now we have to, you know, keep thinking about that. Good night, good morning, good afternoon, wherever and whenever you are. This has been The Confessional. Peace.